Good morning. My name is Ben. I serve as one of the pastors here at Common Ground. And if you're anything like me, you love job performance reviews. There's nothing quite as exquisite as having your boss's undivided attention as he or she uh, examines your work output using various metrics and criteria. If you're cranking out those TPS reports fast enough, some of you got that reference. Often critiquing not just what you do, but how you work with others, your, your attitude, perhaps even your likability. A recent review of mine included working on my RBF. That's right, my resting Ben face. So here it goes. What can I say? It's a growth area. <laughs> Receiving criticism doesn't usually feel good. Most people want to feel confident and competent, and hearing something to the contrary can sometimes sting. But depending on the type of work that you do, it could literally mean the difference between life and death. I don't know about you, but I want my doctors, nurses, and pharmacists to undergo scrutiny and job performance reviews. Imagine a world where civil engineers, law enforcement, and power grid linemen never received feedback or continued training. It wouldn't take long for society to fall apart. I want you to take a second and think back about a time where you received some on-the-job feedback or criticism that was true but maybe tough to hear. Hopefully the sting quickly turned to self-reflection and eventual growth and maturity so that you could actually be confident and competent in your job, so that you could actually be a part of training those who came after you. When it comes to your spiritual development, the stakes include eternal consequences far beyond the threat of death or physical harm. Now take a moment and think back on a time when somebody gave you feedback or criticism about your spiritual walk. Criticism that, though true, maybe also stung. Today's passage, as we continue our study through Hebrews, is nothing short of a solid spiritual rebuke. And I got assigned it. Woohoo! It's a blunt admonition written to first century Jewish Christians identifying a heart issue relevant to every human everywhere across any age. But there's also hope in this rebuke if we take the time to understand and apply it. But before we jump into uh, our passage in Hebrews, we need to do a real quick recap. The main theme of the letter of Hebrews is perseverance. These believers who received this, this letter had been feeling the weight of persecution and were being tempted to abandon Christianity, were being tempted to go back to Judaism. So the author starts off by showing how Jesus is the answer because he is better than anything or anyone that came before him or will come after him. The author includes several warnings about, about drifting away from God, uh, about missing out on the peace and rest God, God offers through a deep and abiding relationship with Jesus Christ, about the deceitfulness of sin and how it can harden our hearts. 
Then at the end of chapter 4 and into chapter 5, we learn that Jesus is the long-awaited perfect high priest that was promised in the Old Testament, the one who pays the penalty for our sins because of his sinless life and perfect sacrifice on our behalf. Jesus could do this because he is fully God and fully man and will be for all of eternity. Only God could absorb the righteous and eternal consequences of sin, but only a man could suffer and relate to us in every possible way as our representative. So as a man, Jesus experienced all the same temptations as we do. He would stub his toe and would feel tempted to curse, just like us. Many people, including his own family, rejected him, shunned him, scorned him, tempting him to sinful anger, just like us. His gaze would fall upon the ultimate creation, women, and feel tempted to fantasize, just like us. He can relate to us because he is us, yet without sin. This means we can go to him with our problems and our struggles because he gets it and he gets us. And he is our perfect advocate before the Father, pleading our case as the perfect high priest. The idea of Jesus as the high priest gets fleshed out more in chapter 7. But at the end of chapter 5 and into chapter 6, we get this somewhat brutal sidebar. And it's ridiculously important. Our text today begins in chapter 5, verse 11, but we're actually going to start in verse 7 for the sake of context. So grab your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under the seat that you are sitting in or in front of you. It's blue. And in that Bible is page 1105. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. You get more into Melchizedek and who he was in chapter 7. So that's the context. This is our passage for today. About this... We have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have, who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And right now, we ask that your spirit would illuminate it for our hearts and minds to comprehend. Lord, we pray that you would remove all distractions, that you would remove all invasive thoughts that seek to pull our attentions away. And ultimately, Lord, we, we pray that you would be glorified, that your word, when it goes out, will not return void. Lord, we cling to that promise, and we claim that promise today. And so we submit this message to you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Our main point today is also the title, and it's pretty blunt. Grow up. No, seriously. Grow up. God wants you to get this super important message. Spiritual maturity is possible and expected for those who follow Jesus. Our passage begins in verse 11 with about this, meaning Jesus as our propitiation, our suffering Savior, our perfect high priest. About this, we have much to say, meaning we have more to share. But who's we in this passage? The Holy Spirit working through the human agent writing this letter. This is actually an awesome example of how scripture is breathed out by God through the skill and personality of the person writing down God's words. About this, we have much to say. So what's the point? Well, get this. God isn't in the business of withholding himself from us. That's the point. It's actually the opposite. He passionately desires to share himself with us, to reveal himself in his glory and his love and his majesty. But how do you share with someone? How do you share yourself with someone who doesn't want to hear anything new? About this, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. The phrase dull of hearing includes the idea of becoming sluggish, lazy, apathetic, like you've quit trying, you're just phoning it in. And ultimately what this reveals is a lingering rebelliousness. The first blank, if you're taking notes on the, on the bulletin, is a universal principle of life that goes like this. I can tell you what, and I can show you how, but I can't fix your won't. Teachers know this principle well. Parents experience, too, experience this too when those pesky, <clears throat> the, those delightful children get older and bigger and start fighting back. Your second blank is another universal principle. Every human enters this world ignorant and rebellious. And as parents, we do our best to remove that ignorance through teaching an example. And we try to instill a malleable heart, obedient to God and ourselves, through discipline and example. But at some point, that child will have to take personal responsibility for his or her continued learning and remaining rebellious tendencies. Pastors, counselors, and anyone who's ever discipled knows these universal principles keenly well. We can teach someone who doesn't know anything. We can show them how to use that knowledge. But what do you do with someone who willfully digs in their heels and says, nah, I'm not going to listen anymore or try that. God wants to tell you what and show you how, but you keep telling him no. That's what these Christians are receiving. That message is still relevant today. Wow, that's some heavy stuff. That's just the first verse. Man, we're going to be here all day. Verse 12 ramps up this spiritual admonition. Verse 12 says, For by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, 
not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. Picture a six-month-old in a high chair. We make those silly airplane noises and try to distract him so we can deposit the mushed-up peas in his mouth, only to have him spit that nastiness right back out again or swat the spoon away, and then we got to try again and again and again. Milk's a cinch. Tastes good. Goes down easy. But solid food is essential for growth and development. Here's your next blank. God wants to give us solid food, but sometimes it tastes bad, and it's hard to swallow because it forces us to reckon with sin strongholds in our lives we'd rather not deal with. So we spit it out and ask for more milk. Recall that visual Derek used on the whiteboard two weeks ago with the circles with the heart in the middle? Many Christians get stuck in participating in spiritual activities, which are good and necessary. These things include like daily devotions, giving, and church participation, all essential for spiritual growth. But get this, those are all part of the milk diet. Going from the milk diet to abiding in God's abundant rest and peace through your faithful and loving obedience, getting to the heart like Derek analogy on the whiteboard pointed out, that requires chewing on the meat you'd rather spit out or, or just plain ignore through manufactured busyness. Man, Ben, the heads just come, keep on coming. I promise there's hope at the end. But imagine never receiving vital feedback that could radically change your life now and forever. Picture a child learning to ride his bike, but he never looks for cars before crossing the street. Or a teenager learning to drive, but she constantly forgets to buckle up. No loving parent would allow those things to continue without correction and even rebuke and discipline. Now picture a Christian struggling with sin who either tries to fake being okay or completely withdraws from community because of fear and shame. God loves you too much to leave you ignorant and rebellious. That's why scripture like this exists. So what are the warning signs of those who are spiritually mature because of of phoning it in because of stubborn or lazy hearts? Our text today clearly lays out four key markers that we can use for self-evaluation. And they're super critical. These markers don't care if you're nine or 99. Advanced age is no more guarantee of spiritual maturity than youthfulness is of immaturity. So let's get to these warning signs. The first one is in verse 13. Immature believers are unskilled in the word of righteousness. They don't know God's word or how to apply it and don't care to study and learn. Sure, perhaps they consume God's word out of habit, but only on a superficial level to check off the spiritual activity box. They don't commit to time away from distraction in order to then listen to the Holy Spirit use the word to teach, reproof, correct, and train them in righteousness. So their skill in the word is only superficial. It's only skin deep. 
They don't know how to apply God's word because they have not hidden it in their hearts and therefore cannot recall scripture when they need it most. Second warning sign. This is in verse 14. Immature believers lack discernment. Immature believers lack discernment, which means they make foolish decisions in multiple categories, like how to steward their time, their talents, their treasures. And they make foolish decisions when it comes to how to handle sin and temptation. They avoid community when struggling instead of embracing God's plan for how we are to confess to each other and build each other up in love. They are gullible and easily taken in by false Christian beliefs from those who preach a counterfeit gospel. They go to worldly sources of wisdom instead of the sources of wisdom provided in God's word, described in scripture, and they are guided by their feelings and their own deceitful hearts. Third warning sign, also in verse 14. Immature believers struggle to distinguish good from evil. Believe it or not, this is probably the most important category. You might be tempted to think that recognizing evil is pretty easy. We all, hopefully, know that murder, adultery, and stealing is wrong. But what about complaining? Grumbling? Gossip? Judgmentalism? Even anger? While cognitively you might agree that these are sinful, do you practice running away from these temptations because you know beyond a shadow of a doubt they are evil? What about the influences you allow in your life? That questionable show you watch. The music that glorifies what God finds detestable. The things you laugh at on social media because you don't live as though the Holy Spirit can see you and see what you think is funny. Distinguishing good from evil goes far beyond just recognizing the difference between the two. It means actively fleeing from evil and pursuing good. There's so much more we could say about this, but let's get to the, the last warning sign. This one is in chapter 6, verse 1. Immature believers do not move past the basics of the Christian faith. They don't move past the basics. The basics are essential. They're foundational. They're super important. Don't get me your scripture wrong. But once you've mastered your times tables in the third and fourth grade, you shouldn't have to revisit them again in high school. Immature believers hear the same thing again and again and again, but still seem, to need, still seem to need to be taught it, the basics, over and over and over again. And what are these basics described in our scripture? What are these foundational beliefs? Well, we believe in the free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, not through dead works. We believe in, the baptism, in baptism as the outward show of obedience to an inward change of heart. We believe every believer has the Holy Spirit, who provides us with talents and gifts we are used to edify and serve the body. We believe in the resurrection of the dead and of a real and literal hell. That's all in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 6. Those are pretty basic. But if that's as far as you've come in your spiritual understanding for what it means to be saved, then you're missing out on more than I could possibly cover in this message. Okay, so you might be thinking, I hear you, Ben. 
So how do I move from the elementary teachings about Christ and move towards maturity? What a great question. I'm so glad you asked that. Well, the first thing you want to do is embrace the forward progression of salvation. Verse 14 tells us that spiritually mature believers constantly practice pursuing righteousness, constantly pursue an abiding relationship with God because salvation isn't an event but a progression. Derek's been using the whiteboard, and I felt kind of jealous, so I'm like, I'm going to use the whiteboard today. So here we go. I know we have covered the definition of salvation on this stage multiple times, but we're going to keep beating that dead horse until it turns to glue and it sticks. So when we use the word salvation, we're actually talking about three separate concepts, all tied into one. The first idea of salvation is the word justification. Justification means the moment you are made right with God. That does happen just once. The moment you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you are saved in the sense of you are now justified. When you are justified at that moment, you are guaranteed to not experience the eternal consequences of sin, which is hell and separation from God. That's your justification. Your sanctification is the moment after your justification, the rest of your life, until Jesus returns or you go to be with him. That's your sanctification. To sanctify something means to make it more and more holy, to make it more and more like Jesus Christ. That's your sanctification. The third idea involved in salvation is the idea of glorification. Glorification is the moment you see Jesus face to face, whether he returns to earth or you go to be with him, where all remaining sin in you gets burnt away. You will never again experience temptation. You will never again experience suffering, pain, fear, doubt, and you are glorified because you are going to be in God's perfect presence for all eternity. So when we say salvation... Those are the three ideas that we have to keep in mind. Justification, sanctification, glorification. The moment you are justified, you begin a journey. The line in between justification and glorification, picture that as a road. As you travel this road of life, guess what? You're going to get distracted. Issues are going to come up in your life to try to distract you from the forward progression of your sanctification, of your salvation. And this could be sin. I did not make my circles big enough. It could be suffering, also not big enough. It could be fear. Let's, you know what, let's throw in another one over here. Let's put in doubt. We are constantly bombarded by things of this world and in our own hearts that are trying to distract us from our sanctification journey. A professor of mine called these distracting circles the cul-de-sacs of life. I, uh, I was just trying to find a house in Phoenix once. Phoenix is a giant, sprawling city, and this was a suburban neighborhood, and every house looked the same. This was before GPS, so I had, you know, the Rand McNally map that I was flipping through trying to find this particular address. 
But it seemed like everywhere I turned, I kept running into a cul-de-sac and having to turn around and backtrack and go back the same way I had just come. It was super frustrating and annoying. There's a really funny quote from the movie The Burbs from the trash guys collecting trash on the street. He says, I hate cul-de-sacs. There's only one way out, and the people are kind of weird. <laughs> How many of you guys live in a cul-de-sac or a dead-end street? Oh, yeah, see, it makes sense. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. But there's a line in that that is actually extremely true. There's only one way out. When you experience the cul-de-sacs of life, when you experience the struggle of sin, when you experience suffering either through somebody else's sinning against you or the decay of life as your body breaks down or the decay of the world, when you experience fear, when you experience doubt and you feel stuck, you feel like you're just driving around in circles, there's only one way out. And it's to go back to the cross. It's only through the lens of the cross that we can look back at our justification about what it took for us to be made right with God. What it took for us to be sinless in God's eyes. The sacrifice that Jesus made. We can only dwell on that. We can only meditate on that when we think back on the cross. And that provides us with humility. And it will also provide us with perspective. That is what meditating on our justification will, will bring to mind in our hearts and our minds. What it took for me to be made right with God. Giving me humility and perspective for my situation. It's also through the cross that we need to look at our glorification. Clinging to that hope. Clinging to the, the guarantee that we have because of Christ saving us. Where we will no longer experience pain, no longer experience suffering, and be with God forever. When we look to our justification and our glorification through the cross, something's going to change in us. I guarantee it. When we look for our look. To look forward to our glorification, it's going to give us hope. It's going to help us endure. As you can see, these ones were written nicely like three days ago, and the handwriting kind of fell apart. Hopefully you can read that. It's only through the cross that we can find our humility, that we can find our perspective. It's only through the cross that we can look forward to the hope that we have in Christ, giving us the strength to endure. Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's what, that's what this is about. That forward progression, I don't know if you can see these tiny arrows, our sanctification is a forward progression towards the glorification that we hope for, that we long for, that we pursue. The Apostle Paul writes about this in Philippians chapter 3. He says that the goal for every believer is that we know Christ and the powers of his resurrection, sharing in Christ's suffering, becoming like him in our obedience even to the point of death, that we could also experience the resurrection of the dead. 
Then Paul writes this in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's talking about glorification. He's pressing towards that. Let those of us who are mature, he writes, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. The the spiritually mature or maturing believer embraces the forward progression of salvation. Here's the key point with that. Remain humble and teachable. At no point, whether you're 9 or 99, should you be saying, I've had enough. I have arrived. There's nothing else for God to teach me. Second point. Second way that we can move from spiritually immature to mature or maturing. The second point is so important. Uh, We're actually doing it twice. I mentioned it towards the beginning of the message, and that is God isn't in the business of withholding himself from us. Embrace this fact as though your life depends on it, because it does. God passionately desires to share himself with us, to reveal himself in his love, his glory, his majesty, to satisfy the deepest longings of our soul that only he can satisfy. So how does he do this? Well, it's this amazing, beautiful partnership between our time diligently spent studying the word humbly seeking to understand it at a deeper level, and the Holy Spirit illuminating it for our hearts and minds to comprehend. Jesus said in John 14, 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Then again, in two chapters later, John 16, 13, when the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all truth. Not only have we not been abandoned to try and understand God's word all alone, but we actually can't understand and embrace it without the Holy Spirit's help. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 13. It's a lengthy passage here, so I don't think it's on the screen. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 13. He writes, among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for all for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us, how? Through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit 
of that person, which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Man, I love God's Word. It's so clear, it's so practical, and it makes the point way better than I ever could. Now, don't get me wrong. There will be times in your life where you feel like you're wandering in the wilderness. And it feels like God is super distant and maybe not listening. That will happen. But that's when you will be at your weakest and you will feel temptation to sin the strongest. Jesus, our perfect high priest, experienced this literally, physically, and spiritually in Matthew chapter 4. And his response was to press in to the truth of God's word rather than embrace sin. God also reveals himself through his people. That's us. Who are equipped and empowered by the Spirit to build each other up in the knowledge of God to, through, through teachers, through pastors, through shepherds, to anyone who disciples another. Paul instructed his disciple Timothy to entrust the things he had learned to faithful men who could then go on and teach others. You are here today because of the faithfulness of disciples who made disciples. And that divine calling began in Matthew 28 from Jesus himself. Go and make disciples. And it's applicable to all of his believers to this day. We also get to experience God's comfort in times of hardship and suffering through those in our family of God who have already received that comfort, like it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Knowing God and growing deeper in our love for God is a group effort and is an essential part of our spiritual maturity because this is where we practice what we preach. Right here. This is where we practice what we confess, what we believe. If we can't demonstrate love and serve each other here, our testimony out there will be meaningless. Okay, so this has been a somewhat blunt and perhaps painful message. So I want to leave you with hope. Spiritual maturity is possible. Feel stuck? I've been there. Feel like you're just driving in circles in one of these cul-de-sacs? I've done that. We've all done that. Go back to the cross. Go back to who Jesus is, what he's done on your behalf, and what he's promised. Find that humility and that perspective. Cling to that hope so that you can endure. Go back to the cross. For those of you who believe you are spiritually mature or at least on the right path, I would encourage you to identify someone who you can disciple. And if you can't find someone or don't know where to look, then get plugged into one of our groups and find a place to belong and make a difference. 
One of the things we do here at Common Ground is we try to give you some next steps, something that you can take home and actually hold yourself accountable to. We have three next steps for you. I think they're in the handout. Uh, but the first one is commit to asking God for more of himself. That might sound a little strange at first. But if you haven't made it a, a regular part of your prayers to say, God, reveal yourself more to me. Start that now. Because I can stand here and say with 100% certainty that when you do that, you're praying God's will. And he will say yes. I can say that with 100% certainty. Very few things in life can I do that with. But I know God wants to reveal himself to his children. So commit to asking him for more of himself. Your second next step is to evaluate your spiritual trajectory with a close friend or spouse. Maybe, maybe using the, the four warning signs. There's plenty more others. But evaluate your spiritual trajectory. Be open to receiving some of that feedback that you might otherwise be avoiding. And then the third next step is one that I can't encourage enough. Begin a journal. Some of you just went, on the inside. Was that you, John? <laughs> Begin a journal of what God reveals to you about himself and about you. And the awesome thing about doing this is you can flip back a couple years later and see his faithfulness. See that 100% guarantee that I just gave you. And look back and be encouraged and show other people, look how faithful God is. If you haven't already, again, I would encourage you to get plugged into one of our groups and ask for a mature or maturing believer to join you in your sanctification journey, to disciple you, to walk beside you. And if you're here and you've never made the commitment to follow Jesus, that offer for justification is still open. It's still there. Romans 10 says that if you believe in your heart, that Jesus is Lord, and declare with your mouth that he is your Savior, you are made right with God. That can happen for you today. We have the opportunity to respond this morning through communion. We take communion to remember the sacrifice Jesus made on our behalf. The bread represents his body that was broken for our sins, but it's also a promise of the bodily resurrection we will have in the future. The juice represents his blood that washes away our sin because sins cannot be washed away any other way but through the blood. Scripture warns us that this is for believers who have taken the time to examine their hearts. So I'd encourage you to do that now. Examine your hearts before you take communion. Perhaps you need to confess something to God or to somebody else close to you. Perhaps you need to ask someone for forgiveness or extend it. I will be by the double doors in the back if you want to pray with someone or have questions. Uh, but I'm going to pray. And the way we do communion here at Common Ground is we have three stations. Uh, you can retrieve the elements and you can go to a corner and pray quietly. You can respond through one of our prayer walls or you can pray with your family. Uh, but you take the communion when you are ready. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word even the parts of it that are tough to chew, 
even the parts of it that are tough to swallow, we know that your word brings life. And Lord, that's my hope today, is, is that your word would bring life, that it would bring illumination, and that lives would be changed. Lord, that people who feel stuck would find their way back out, that they would look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who paid it all and promises even more. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do in these moments. And may you be glorified through our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.